Our Father and our God, we thank you that you do not leave us in the dark, nor without witness, but you have delivered unto us through the prophets and the apostles your unchanging word. But Lord, we also confess that your word must be used by your Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to see afresh things that perhaps we have now forgotten or to see anew things that we've never seen before. But Father, we also pray that you would give us receptive hearts, not just that we might understand these things, but we might be willing, we might be willing to obey and to apply these things throughout all of our lives. Lord, keep us from error, keep us from wandering to uh, useless cul-de-sacs, but keep us on that straight and narrow road that we might rightly worship you and rightly serve you in this life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning what we'll be looking at is what Scripture says about itself. That's, that's the focus of, of the message this morning. We'll be looking at three things. Firstly, what is Scripture? What is Scripture? That's the first thing. Secondly, the nature and the character of Scripture, that it's God-breathed, that it's, imperfect, that it's perfect and infallible, it's clear and it's powerful. And then thirdly, why all of this matters to us today. Great to have an understanding of points one and two, but if we don't understand how this applies, well, you can read the book of James for why that's a, a useless uh, hermeneutic. Anyway, so firstly, what is Scripture? What is Scripture? For some of you, you may be saying, Mike, that's a very basic question. And, and it is a very basic, it's a very fundamental question, but for some people here, and I can't assume that everyone is, is grounded in the faith, there are some people who, who may have never thought about this, even if you've been in churches for many years. But what is scripture? Well, firstly, the word scripture, well, the way we use scripture in English, is based on a Greek word called graphe. Graphe, graphe, like graph paper, it's writing. It, that, that word is used over 50 times in the New Testament, and so we have a fair understanding of what it means. I'll just refer you to one, uh, one passage in Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus says to those around, to those around him, have you never read the graphe? Have you never read the scriptures? So when Jesus is dealing with those around him, he's referring to something that they can, they can see, that they can touch, that they can handle, that they can hold. Have you never read the scriptures? What's Jesus referring to? He's referring to God's word immortalized in written form. And for Jesus, Primarily in the context of Matthew 21, he's referring to the scriptures for the Jews. That's from Genesis, all the Pentateuch, all the historical books, all the prophets, all the wisdom literature. 39 books from Genesis through to Malachi. Let that sink in for a moment. When asked what scripture is to Jesus, what did he refer to? Jesus referred to the Old Testament. 
Now, most of us in this room wouldn't have a problem with that, theoretically. We, we would say, yes, that's, that's Scripture. Scripture for Jesus, the Old Testament, that is what he would meditate on day and night. But when you and I are given a choice of what we will turn to for Scripture, how many of us would instinctively go to the Old Testament? Actually, I'll ask this question. If you were to do an audit of your reading of the Scriptures, how much of it would it be in the Old Testament? Would it be three quarters? Because that's how much of the Scriptures is the Old Testament. Or would it be dominated by the New Testament? Now, look, I'll be the first to admit it's somewhat easier, isn't it, to, to read the New Testament, to read about Jesus, to read about what he did on the cross and the resurrection and the, the, the growth of the early church and what Paul says and what Peter says, because that's what we can relate to. As a New Testament church, there is a natural affection or intimacy with the New Testament because we read that. We see how it relates to us. And when we think of the Old Testament, which we agree is Scripture, but then we say, I don't know who that person is. I don't understand the geography. I don't know who that king is or why that battle happened. And these sacrifices, why is it X number of doves and Y number of bulls and why do we sprinkle it left and right and east and west? I don't get that. That's hard. So we understand that Scripture is the Old Testament, We do understand it, but there's a real danger for us if we don't actually spend enough time in the Old Testament. I want you to, to turn to Luke 24, if you have your Bibles. And unfortunately, I don't know what page that is um, in, in the black ones. But Luke 24, verse 27. This is a passage about the risen Lord Jesus, and he is on the road to a place called Emmaus. His disciples are a bit confused. There's stories about Jesus being crucified. Now he's risen from the dead. What is going on? These men and women, they are confused and they need guidance. And so in Luke 24, verse 27, it records that Jesus comes alongside them. And in their confusion, verse 27, he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What happens here in Luke 24, at a basic level, is information transfer. Jesus passes on information that these these men have failed to understand in the Old Testament about himself. But what's the result of that information transfer? Perhaps a systematic lecture in Old Testament to, to, to these two men on the road to Emmaus. What's the end result? That they can write a better essay? They can preach a better sermon? Perhaps. But in verse 32, cast your eyes to this verse. As Jesus is explaining the scriptures to them, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. 
Luke 24 shows us that Jesus himself, to encourage confused saints, anxious saints, worried saints, was to turn not to the epistles of Paul or Peter. He could have, but actually they weren't existent in that day. He was more than happy to just turn them to the Old Testament. And yes, technically there was information transferred, but what was the end result? Their hearts burned within them. So, I don't know about you. You might have good days, you might have bad days. I have a bit of both. Sometimes you're feeling a bit slack in your walk with the Lord. Perhaps you're a bit confused. How many of us turn to the Old Testament to have our hearts burn within us? Because that's what Jesus did. That's not second best. It's not second best. It's not silver or bronze. It's pure gold, just like the New Testament. And I wanted, I wanted to start there because modern-day evangelical churches like ours are in danger of being like the Marcionites. You go, who are the Marcionites? Do they make pizzas? Do they lay on Lions Road? Who are the Marcionites? Well, the Marcionites were a group in the early church that had a very high view of the Gospels. They had a very high view of Paul's letters, but they had a very low view of the Old Testament. They were considered, not just wayward, they were considered heretics. And quite frankly, if we're honest with ourselves, we as the modern evangelical church are verging towards the Marcionites. Whenever we go, where should I turn? I'll turn to the New Testament. Friends, properly understood, the Old Testament is scripture and it just it has to be more than technically understood we have to read the scriptures in such a way that causes our hearts to burn within us that's what jesus did but is scripture only the old testament is scripture you, you spend a lot of time spending uh, focusing our hearts and minds on the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. Is scripture only to be found in the Old Testament? Well, if the Marcionites erred in that way, the Jews erred in a different way. Because remember, the Jews had a very high view of the Old Testament. But they couldn't bear to read anything in the New Testament that talked about Jesus. Now, the sad thing is if they had properly understood the Old Testament, just like it recorded for us in Luke 24, they would have understand everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus in shadows, in types. Now the question you have to ask is, how do we know the New Testament is Scripture? How do we know it's Scripture? Jesus doesn't refer to the book of Revelation, doesn't refer to James. How do we know that's Scripture? Well, there are lots of counter-references to do this, but a really helpful place to turn to is 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. It's one of the later books in the New Testament. And Peter writes... Therefore, beloved, since you were waiting for these, 
Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him. Peter's exhorting his hearers. He's referring to the Apostle Paul. He's clearly aware of who Paul is and that Paul has written to to them. As he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. I've got to say, verse 16 is one of the most encouraging verses because particularly what he writes next. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. If you struggle with some of Paul's writings, you're in good company, so did Peter. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. There are people in Peter's day that are twisting Paul's letters, Paul's words, but note this, as they do the other scriptures. What what Peter is saying there is people twist Paul's words his scriptural words, just as they do the other scriptures. For the Apostle Peter, and you'll see it in Paul's writings as well, and in James, there are cross-references. And very early on in the church, there was acceptance that what was written by the apostles or their delegates had the same authority, had the same veracity, had the same character as the Old Testament. They saw the beauty of God's word, the self-consistency, the same message. They saw it as self-authenticating. And this is a very big topic, and I have limited time, so all I can do is refer you to a book. If, if you want to read about how the canon, how the, the God's word came together, there's a great book out there by Mike Kruger called Canon Revisited. You can ask, uh, I can give you references to it later. Canon Revisited by Mike Kruger, and it shows how the early church recognized the New Testament very early on as having the same authority as the Old Testament. This first point is what is scripture? And to summarize all of this is scripture is the sacred writings of God comprised of the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books in the New Testament. And practically speaking, we have to avoid two errors. There's the error of one group, the Marcionites, of avoiding the Old Testament and saying that's second class, it's not as good. And we also have to avoid the error of the Jews that rejected the New Testament. You know, as with every age, we tend to veer one way or the other. And so you know your own hearts uh, and, and should respond accordingly. So that is the first point. What is Scripture? The second thing I wanted to deal is what is Scripture like? And this is where I'd invite you to turn to 2 Timothy 3 the passage that was read to us earlier. What are the attributes, what are the characteristics of Scripture? What makes it special? And we'll just read 2 Timothy 3, verse 14 through to 16. Paul exhorts Timothy, As for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, 
knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God, or God breathed, and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. From this passage, I want to draw out five brief observations, five attributes on the, uh, on, on the, on the characteristics of God's word. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is the word theonostos, or God breathed, or breathed out of God. The first thing we need to understand about God's word is its origins, its source. Yes, it's true humans, human beings, Paul, Luke, Peter, James, Jude, Moses, David were used of God to write God's word. And some of you might be saying, isn't that just like the newspaper example that you gave? You say, they're sinful men. Of course they're sinful men. You say, how can sinful men write a perfect book? Well, I'll ask you this question. There are many crooked sticks out there. You go out in the street here on Tranmere, Bowman Street, many crooked sticks. Do you think a perfect God... Could, write a, a, could draw a straight line with a crooked stick. That's a helpful illustration. God can use sinful men and women to express, to perfectly express his will. You see, Scripture, God's word, the Bible, is not simply the writings of men. It's very important to understand that the original source of the scriptures is not the thinking of Paul or the experience of Luke, but it is directly from God. Because God's word is God-breathed, it reflects his character as God. It's good, it's perfect, it's unchanging, it's consistent, it's true. When we interact with God's word... How many of us would be embarrassed to say that when we're finished reading God's word, we just throw it on a table or lose it? It's in the back of the car. It's fallen down the side of the lounge. I don't know where it is. Like, you know, that holiday novel that you you were reading, but because you're sitting on a beach, it gets washed out with the tide. How many of us view God's word as simply another book, as a magazine, as a newspaper? We're often guilty of treating God's word as simply something written by men. But if we understand that the Bible comes directly from God, we're going to treat it as precious, as altogether lovely. Now, I noticed Josh and Tarlene there. I know they got married recently and um, don't want to embarrass them, but... I suspect when they were courting, when they were dating, and um, I don't know, did you write to one another? Did you, did, did you, or did you just text? You know, just part of this generation. Well, you write to it. Imagine the first notes of, of, of love and concern for one another, and you just, oh, I don't know where it is. 
When my wife and I dated, we, we wrote to one another because I was in England and she was here and we've kept all those letters because they're precious to us. Likewise, if we believe these are God's love letters to us, we're going to treasure them. We're not going to just be indifferent to them. We'll, we'll want to get up and read them, won't we? Trust you do because it's directly from God. So that's the first thing. It is God-breathed. The second point is because God's uh, because Scripture is God breathed, the one attribute I really want to highlight is that it is perfect. It is infallible. It is without error. A few months ago, a research group, I think they were based in in Israel or Lebanon, they came out with some astounding research. This was a group of historians and geneticists, and they were working together. They were, what they did was they uh, got all these samples of DNA from descendants of the Canaanites. I'm not sure if any of you came across this research article. And when they processed all the DNA, they published their findings. And they said, the Canaanites weren't wiped out from Israel. All the, all the newspapers, all the media outlets jumped on that and said, wow, the Bible is proved wrong again. Until someone wrote to one of the editors and said, dear sir, would you mind turning to this passage in the Old Testament where it actually says the Israelites were unfaithful and had failed to completely wipe out the Canaanites? Well... <laughs> There was only one retraction of, of the hundreds of publications that had said the Bible's wrong. I had to find that retraction because it, it, was, it was a wonderful piece to read. It said, the original version of this story erroneously said the Bible claimed the Canaanites were wiped out. However, elsewhere in the Bible, it says the elimination was not successful. Friends, media outlets newspapers, the four major um, news outlets in, in, in Australia, researchers who publish in peer-reviewed journals, they get things wrong. As a scientist, I know they get it wrong more often than not and would care to admit to. I make plenty of mistakes, but there are no errors in the word of God. Nothing. Zip. The Lord Jesus would rebuke you if you would get some white out or liquid paper and want to correct a jot or a tittle. No errors. What we're talking about is the autographs, the original letters. There are variations and so forth, and there, there are ways to explain that. But the original word of God, there are no errors. There are translation biases as well, so don't confuse the two. But God's word is perfect without error. And as I said earlier, if you come across an apparent contradiction in God's word, it says this many days or that many people, there's one of two explanations there's one of two explanations. How many of you, when you turn on the TV and it's a blurry signal, automatically think the transmitter at Gore Hill is broken? Very few of you. 
You automatically check the back of the cables. You go. You automatically think there's something wrong with the recipient. But unfortunately, when it comes to God's word, when we can't understand something, we automatically go, oh, there must be something wrong with God's word. The transmitter's broken. Friends, that's not how it works. We have to come to God's word with a hermeneutic. That's an approach. That's a, that's a, and a hermeneutic of trust rather than skepticism. If something doesn't quite make sense, there's probably going to be a good reason for that. But we have to come to it with understanding God's word is God-breathed and therefore it's perfect. Third thing I want you to uh, note is it says here in the passage that it is sufficient, that it is complete. Particularly verse 17, all scriptures given, why? That the man of God, who has a very hard job, who has a very tough job, may be complete, may be perfect, Perfectly equipped for every good work. The Bible prepares the man of God for every good work so that the man of God can prepare God's people for every God, for every good work. Not just some, not just some works, every good work. I know people always say to me, oh, it doesn't tell me whether to have cornflakes or wheat bix. If you can tell me one of those is a good work, well then maybe you have a point. But no, if you want to glorify God, you want to worship him, you want to serve him in the church and in the community, then everything you need is in God's word. If the Bible was, wasn't complete, you couldn't say that. Now some might say, in Elijah's time, there were many prophets who did many things. I'm sure they said lots of things that were helpful, that were from God, that were true. What about that? Actually, fast forward several hundred years, doesn't it say that Jesus did many things that aren't recorded in the scriptures? Isn't that God's word? Well, well, it is. But that revelation was for that specific time and space, for those peoples. God has captured for us in the graphe, in the scriptures, for people living in 2017, for 1817, for 1217, in whatever language we're speaking, God has recorded for his people throughout all time the things that are necessary and that will perfectly equip us for every good work. We don't need anything more. We don't need anything less. The way we know that is, the very last few verses in Revelation 22, which some of you may be familiar with, you, you'll recall, it's a warning. It's a general warning that says, I'll paraphrase, be careful not to add, be careful not to take away. And everyone says, oh, is that just for the book of Revelation? Yes, it is for the book of Revelation. I think it's for all of Scripture. And the reason I, I, I believe that is that's not the first time you actually read that in the Bible. That is the classic formula that was first heard in Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 4.2 and 12.32 that basically says, don't add to God's word, don't take it away. Why? Because it's sufficient. It's complete. Everything you need for life is in the scriptures. God breathed. Perfect complete, 
The fourth one is scripture is clear. Another word for it is perspicuous, perspex. There is scriptural clarity. Now, why, do I, why is this important? Why is it important to know that scripture is clear, that we can understand the message? Well, it's very reassuring because I don't know how many people here have been to Bible college or who are New Testament or Old Testament professors. You know, if God's word was so complex and so vague and so detailed that you needed higher degrees to understand it, then we would all be in a world of pain and trouble. Thankfully, we don't need degrees in theology. We don't actually need experts to teach us. It is plain and evident to all. And do you remember the passage we looked at in 2 Peter 3? What did he say about Paul's writings? Many of the things he says is hard to understand. He doesn't say many. He doesn't say most. He doesn't say all. He says some things. Yeah. There you go. God's word is true. Some things Paul writes is hard to understand. Some things Peter writes is hard to understand as well. But just some things keeps us humble. Delivers, delivers us from pride and from arrogance. Now God's word is readily accessible to all. Why do people claim, though, they can't understand it? You might be in a Bible study with some, someone or uh, you have a conversation say, I don't get this, I don't understand that. Well, it, it may fall in the category of what uh, Peter is saying in 2 Peter 3. There are some hard things. But I think most confusion with God's word is not an intellectual problem. More a moral or ethical issue. Even in the current debate that we're having now, I am astounded at how many Christians say, I don't know what to do in this situation. I said, gosh, you ought to know what to do. My seven-year-old child knows what to do. It's not knowing what to do. It's whether you have a desire to do it. Whether you have a desire, a greater desire to please God by keeping his word or to try and please the people around you, which I have to say is always a bad strategy. No, confusion with the scripture, at times it can be intellectual, but I think primarily it's a moral, it's a heart issue. We have to thank God and praise God that he gives the Holy Spirit to overcome our natural tendency. And let's face it, all of us have a natural disposition against God's word until he sent his spirit to change our hearts. They would beat more consistently and resonate with his. It's God-breathed. It's perfect. It's complete. It's clear. And the final observation is God's word, scripture, is powerful. From the opening chapters of the Bible in Genesis, how did God create the world? Entered into a big contract, project management team, got the contractors in, the architects, DAs. Don't ask me about DAs, I'm trying to start a school, it's hard work. No, to create the universe, God spoke. And it was. 
God said. God commanded it. It came into being. That's God's word. It's powerful to create. Also says in Hebrews, God's word sustains us. That means the blood, every blood vessel going around your body is somehow sustained by God's word. Every breath you take is sustained by God's word. That's believer and unbeliever alike. When God's word determines that it is the end of your days, no medical plan, no technological intervention will negate that. We are created by God's word. We are sustained by God's word. And we are also regenerated and redeemed by God's word. God's word converts. And that's when Psalm 19 was read earlier. God's word converts, renewing the soul. Friends, when, and this is perhaps one of the most important things, when you come to the scriptures, understanding all of those things, please don't expect to look at it and go, take it or leave it. God's word, every time you read the scriptures, every time you sit under God's word, God is demanding something of you. He's demanding something of me. He wants change. He wants response. He doesn't want a mental tick and a sense, yes, I agree with that. But God's word is powerful to save and to sanctify. We can't come to it just like friends' advice. Take it or leave it. To many people, God's word is like a pussycat. You know, you purrs in the corner, you give it a bit of milk. Spurgeon once described it as a ferocious lion. We ought to be fearful of it. More fearful of God and his word, what the world has to say to us. That's part of the problem with the modern church. We're very happy to upset God because he'll forgive us. That's what you think. We're coming to God's word all wrong. God's word demands a response, demands obedience. Because it's God's word, not just man's advice. Scripture has power and authority. Now, very briefly, taken together, how do we apply all of this? How do we apply all of this to us? Well, if we cast our mind back 500 years, because the Roman Catholic Church had failed to see many of these things, what happened? All their ideas about how to run church, how salvation occurred, the afterlife, everything. It was a bit of, it was a bit of scripture and a bit of what I thought, what the cardinals thought, what this pope or that pope thought. And quite frankly, it was a mess. As you drive around Sydney and you say, it's really hard to get around this place because it's a mess. That's what it was like. Because there's no central planning authority. That was 500 years ago, and it led to people not understanding the gospel, living their lives thinking they understood the gospel, and ultimately finding out that they had missed the mark. To us, we need to understand yet again that the scriptures, both old and new. So the first thing I'd encourage you to do is to have a diverse reading habit. 
You know, if something you'll learn about me at church camp is as food is being served, I often skip past the salad section. But then I trundle back because I know it's good for me. I don't really like it, but I know it's good for me. My wife tells me. My kids remind me. It's good for you, Dad. Better than that. Better than that. God's word, every single part, is good for you. So don't dismiss it. Leviticus is hard. Yes, Numbers is harder. But read it. Pray for God's grace to understand. Remember those couple of guys going to Emmaus. They didn't turn to Romans 8 to have their hearts warmed. Maybe Christ turned them to something as hard as Numbers. Some of those crazy proverbs that you and I go, what's that about? But God has given them to us to warm and stir our hearts. So please have a diverse reading habit. Also, as we come to God's word, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. How would you come to church or to your devotions if you knew that God was going to be there addressing you that day, this day? He's going to be here. They're not like my church with lots of young adults. In my church, they'd probably have a shower beforehand. You know, they'd come more prepared. They'd come with expectation. But please don't come to God's word without expectation that you are coming before the true and living God. It's not God. But it is God speaking to you, speaking to me. So don't just come prioritizing this like crumbs off the table. You know, that's left there for a few days until the ants start coming and you go, we better sort that out. No, this is the main, this should be the main, this should be the highlight of each day. You should delight in it. There are times when you'll be sorrowful because you failed God. But then there'll be times where you'll be rejoicing knowing God's free and full forgiveness. And finally, make sure that at the end of every time of your interactions with God's word, it ends with praise. Because it I believe that scripture teaches us two things. What we're to believe concerning God and what our duty and what God's duty is required of men from the catechism. We should have a renewed understanding of who our God is leading to worship, praise and adoration. Every time we read God's word, we should also learn how we should be able to serve our fellow men and women both inside and outside the church. So ask yourself those two questions. Am I reading God's word? And also, what's the right response to it? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the scriptures, for the sacred writings that you have entrusted to us. Help us to be faithful stewards and joyful and glad recipients of these precious and true words. And we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.